So let's open together to read from Acts, verse 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptised? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch and he baptised him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light and it's really great to have you with us, especially if this is your first time in a church or a church gathering or it's your first time for a long time. If you are a regular here though, you may have noticed that one of our staff members, Josh, is not here and the reason for that is on Wednesday at 11.33, uh, Bet gave birth to Sadie Quinn. She was 3.36 kilos, yeah, and doing really well. And yeah, I'm with you. I don't know why Josh gets a day off when Beck's done all the hard work, but that's classic, classic male, really, isn't it? You know, cashing in on all her hard work and sacrifice. Um, but stay tuned if you want to be a part of the meal roster for them. Some will be notified in the Facebook group as well. Uh, and also, just to add to, to Kathleen's announcement, we have the AGM after this, which stands for Annual General Meeting. And uh, I want to encourage you to be there because it's a time to reflect back on God's grace toward us over this last year, covering right up from the beginning of 2022, which seems like an age ago. But just for context, that was when everyone got COVID for the first time. Remember that? What a sweet and precious time that was. You, you probably all have your first rat test as a keepsake somewhere on a necklace that you've kind of enshrined forever, that first COVID positive test. Anyway, that was only at the beginning of last year. Um, but um, there's a lot to thank God for over that time and right through to now. So um, that's right after the service. Very easy to get to. No excuses in a way, really. Um, but I'm going to pray for our time this morning that as we open up uh, the book of Acts, that God will be speaking to us uh, and through his word. So let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you're a speaking God. 
that you don't leave us wondering as to who you are or what you are like, but you reveal yourself in Scripture, that you are the God who sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice for all people, that anyone who believes in Him may have salvation and life and be adopted into your family. And so, Father, we just pray that you would move us as we open your word to be a people who are faithful and who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, this morning as we open up Acts 8, we're going to see something really clear, and it's that the gospel is from anyone and for anyone. The gospel is from anyone and for anyone. It doesn't require a special type of person to communicate it and doesn't require a special type of person to receive it. But it also reminded me that many years ago, I remembered, I remembered speaking about a friend once and I let these words slip from my mouth. I remember saying, ah, oh, he should become a Christian. He's already so close. And for context, all that meant was this. We had a fairly loose group of friends And we were the two designated drivers for the crew. I was because I'd become a Christian kind of, you know, just in my last year of high school. And he was because he also didn't drink. And so at that point, really subconsciously, what I was thinking was like, well, look, you know, in many ways, behavior-wise, there's not a lot that's going to have to change for him when he becomes a Christian. So he's already almost so close. Why not just make the next step? Now, the reason that isn't right is because it's completely unbiblical, And it is also the case that he was then and is now, as far as I know, just a staunch atheist. But it struck me thinking about that that is just such an unbiblical way to think. That doesn't align in any way with scriptures. Firstly, because belief in Jesus is not primarily about behavior change. It is the case that if you come to know Jesus, it will lead to new life, new ways of thinking, a new heart and new behaviors that go with it. But it goes belief and then change rather than the other way around for a start. But secondly, it struck me what a human-centered way of thinking that is. Because beneath the phrase, oh, he's so close, is a belief that the gospel is for a particular type of person or type of personality or person with a certain inclination. That it's kind of like any other, in that way, interest group. If you've ever been a part of an interest group, there usually is a kind of a collective personality that certain types of people are drawn to certain same interests. But if you believe the gospel, the message about Jesus, that he died for all people throughout all ages, then it's the case that there's not any one type of person that the gospel is for. And not only that, but it's God himself who drives the mission forward and not people. See, oftentimes we can think, look, the most likely scenario in which someone would go from not calling themselves a Christian to actually being a follower of Jesus would be if you've got a really gifted communicator communicating to a really receptive hearer. That's the most likely situation. But what we're going to see from this story is that that's got nothing to do with it. And that God, because he is God, can save anyone from anywhere at any time. And in this story, he's going to save someone that is completely unlikely. That God is going to so intervene in human history that he's going to go out of his way to demonstrate to his church that anyone now is welcome into the kingdom. And we're going to pick it up from chapter 8. But before we get there, just a couple of, a bit of context for where we're up to in this story. The book of Acts, if you're not familiar with it, is the story of the early, the, the kind of the, the early days of the church. What happened immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it explains how it went from this small kind of group of people to this massive 
Roman-wide movement, how it started in this small city called Jerusalem and how it spread out from there. And last week, what we saw was that as persecution against the followers of Jesus breaks out in Jerusalem, that the people start to leave Jerusalem for safety and they take the gospel with them and they share the gospel and other people get saved. Last week, a guy called Philip, who's just a regular Christian guy, went to an area called Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, and belongs to a people who were kind of considered to be sort of half Jewish. They were once a part of Israel, but then for many, many centuries they haven't been, so they're a mixed ethnicity. And there, some Samaritans get saved, and it's, it's a sign that the gospel is now going out to different, eth- different ethnic groups. And there, it was persecution that kind of propels the mission forward. But here we're going to see something else is. And we're going to pick it up in, in sentence 26 of chapter 8. And it says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So we saw in the last passage that it was persecution that was driving the mission forward. As people try to stamp the gospel out, instead they end up just spreading it. But here, God is going to specifically intervene. And he says to this guy, Philip, to go south this time to a road that's on the way to Gaza. And there was one strip of road that would go from Jerusalem all the way through kind of to Egypt. And Gaza was like the last, the end of civilization, the last water stop before you hit just desert, endless desert. And so he's sending him down there. And it would be very strange to, uh, you know, for him, for Philip at that time, to think, why is God sending me to this obscure, out-of-the-way place? But we're going to see why in just a moment. Look what it says in 8, 27 and 28. It says, And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So here we finally get the reason. God wanted Philip to meet an Ethiopian man. And we're told a little bit about him. Firstly, is that he's he's an African man. He's from Ethiopia, from the area kind of in the Bible known as Cush, just south of Egypt. And he's the treasurer for a queen named Candace. But we also learn here that he's a sexual minority, that he is a eunuch. And this was someone in the ancient world whose genitalia had been either fully or partially removed. And so we're not told much more about him, but this is his role and his state. We're told that he was going to Jerusalem to worship. So it's likely that he wasn't culturally Jewish, but he knew something about the Jewish religion and was kind of checking it out. And so if you're here and checking out Christianity for the first time, you're kind of in a similar spot. He knew something about it. He goes to Jerusalem to find out about it and to worship there. And he's on the way back to his home country. And it's here that he meets Philip. And Philip is being sent to someone who is neither ethnically nor culturally Jewish. So this is a group of people that the gospel has not yet gone to. It's gone to Samaria, but they're a group that were kind of partially Jewish. But this is someone who shares no kind of cultural background with Philip himself. He is in no way a likely convert to Christianity. And yet here, God seems to have drawn him to the scriptures and has brought Philip to him. And this is what happens. In sentence 29, we read, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him 
and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens his, not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So Philip has obeyed God and gone out of his way to this obscure area on a road heading south toward Gaza and then beyond. And when he gets there, we're not told how, but the Spirit commands him, go to that chariot over there. And as he does, he hears this man, the treasurer, an Ethiopian eunuch, reading the book of Isaiah, and he says to him, do you even know what you're reading? And the man says, well, how can I possibly unless someone actually guides me? And he's reading this passage from Isaiah written centuries before Jesus. It says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life was taken away from the earth? And, the, and the, the Ethiopian man asks him, who is this about? And Philip says, it's about Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. He was the suffering servant who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was the one whom this passage was written about. He was the one who came to shed his blood for our sin. He was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. And the man gets it and says right then and there, well, what's to stop me from getting baptized? What's to stop me from being a part of the people of God? And Philip says, nothing really. And there they baptize him. Now it's interesting, here is a man who's not culturally or ethnically Jewish, and yet he hears the gospel, and it so connects with him that immediately he understands who Jesus is and wants to follow him. Then immediately he wants to be a part of his people. Look at what Esau McCauley, an African-American scholar and author, writes in his book, Reading While Black, on this conversion specifically. He says this, I find significance in the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from a particular portion of the servant's narrative, namely the portion where it says that justice was denied him. The eunuch was not materially poor, but as one who had been castrated, he was in a socially ambiguous position because eunuchs were often despised. In a culture with strictly defined gender roles, he would be seen as aberrant. Is it possible that he felt that what had been done to him was a grave injustice for which he was forced for his own safety to keep silent like the silently suffering Christ? Was there a point of connection between the rejection the servant experienced and the rejection that the eunuch experienced? If the eunuch did connect with Jesus as the one who suffered injustice, then he would be the starting point of an unending stream of black believers who found their own dignity and self-worth through the dignity and power that Christ received at his resurrection. So we're not told what the connection was. But as he hears the gospel... It connects across cultural and ethnic and socioeconomic divides. How many people from different ages and stages have met Jesus and found the person of Christ so compelling 
then in that very moment, they're like, I just want to follow him. God has deliberately gone out of his way to save this man to demonstrate that the gospel is for anyone. And more than that, that he's demonstrating to the early church that the gospel is going to go out to the nations. That, the, that Christianity is not going to be reserved to one particular ethnic group or one particular location or time or culture or personality or type of person. Here, God is demonstrating most clearly that the gospel is going to head out to all nations. And more than that, it debunks the myth that Christianity is ultimately like a white European religion. In, in his book, Esau Macaulay, and it's an excellent work, and particularly the chapter on African Christianity, if you have the time to read it. But I'll read one excerpt from his chapter on the African roots of Christianity here, where he says this, A fundamental criticism of black Christianity is that it's an alien thing, an imposition of the white man through the persuasive power of the whip and chain. The first encounter with Jesus, we are told, came from those who wanted, to, wanted us docile and accepting of our earthly status while we waited for relief in the world to come. Black Christianity for some is an oxymoron because the Christian story is not ours. We are latecomers to the drama written by others. But it is historically inaccurate to say that Africans first heard of Christianity via slavery. The Ethiopian could only be familiar with Isaiah if he already knew something about of the, uh, the God of Israel. This shows a deep African connection to the God of the Bible. The Christian story is ours too. It even stretches further back into early Christianity than the three patriarchal sees of the emerging ch uh, Catholic Church. I don't know what that means, by the way. He's too smart for me on that. Maybe some of you know what that, that is, but it just means it goes a long way back. That's the vibe I'm getting. He says, Free black people were able to read in the texts of the Old and New Testaments the story of a God who loved them and called them into his family. It is false to claim that modern black Christians are in revolt against their heritage. If the black community in our day is going to reclaim the lost bits of our history, then let us recover the whole thing. The black man or woman in America who goes back to Africa looking to find their roots will be surprised to find many black and brown ancestors staring them in the face, proclaiming Christ is risen. Christianity is a multi-ethnic movement. And here, early on, in the early parts of the book of Acts, God is demonstrating that this will be for all peoples of all nations. He is calling them from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. And the end of the gospel story finishes with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue gathered around the throne worshipping Jesus. There is no Christian type, no ethnicity, no sexuality, no socioeconomic status. It is all people from all times in all places. And that is why we are the first generation living in a world where there are believers of Jesus in every geopolitical nation on earth. We'll see that the gospel goes forward because God is driving the mission forward. And more than that, he's doing it with just ordinary people connecting with others. Philip here is not a super Christian. He is just a Christian. He's just a follower of Jesus. He's not an apostle. He's not anyone special in the early church set apart. He's just a follower who knows Christ. And God has done all the work here. And the crazy thing about this is oftentimes, I think Christians believe in some ways that evangelism, so sharing the gospel with others, is almost about creating something from nothing. That you have to go out into the city and somehow generate an interest in the gospel and then save people by sheer effort or by sheer skill of communication. 
But what we see in this text here is that God was already at work in this man's life when he brought Philip along for the ride. And that the, the theology that we see around mission in the New Testament is that God is already at work in the city that he sends his people out into. And this plays out in terms of our experience. Right now at the moment we're running an alpha and we're up to the fourth week. I got COVID for one of the weeks, so now I can't remember what we're up to. It's the fourth week, I think, tomorrow night, fourth week. It's going to be great, by the way. But everyone that I've spoken to there who's come along, yes, they came along because someone invited them along. But for most people, God was in, at work in their life at some point or somewhere or another through a bunch of strange coincidences or a question that came up from a colleague at work or a, a tragedy or a challenge or something that they're facing in life that God is already at work in people's lives before they're invited along. And it's so often the case, isn't it? And when it comes to someone coming to genuine faith for the first time, it's because God has been stirring something in their heart, often for a long time. And here, God is already at work in this person's life, drawing him closer. And he brings Philip in to share the gospel with him, so that at that moment, Philip might witness the fact that the gospel is going out to the nations. And so right then and there, this story finishes with a baptism. Look at what it says. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So right then and there, this man is baptized. This is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' great commission. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, an account of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching, he finishes by sending his church out and he says, Go to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so here it's happening. The gospel is going out to the nations. And the first thing this man requests is, Can I be baptized? What would prevent me from being baptized? And Philip is like, Nothing. Stop the chariot. We'll get out here and baptize you. And it happens. And baptism as it was then as it is now is a sign of genuine belief. And to be clear about something, baptism is not necessary for salvation and baptism itself does not save, but it is and was an outward sign of an inward reality. And the reason the church has done it is firstly because Jesus commands it and so for 2,000 years the church has kept the tradition, but it's an incredibly powerful symbol it's a symbol of death and resurrection as you go under the water and come back out again. It's a symbol of new life, the new life in which a new disciple walks. It's a symbol of the cleansing and the washing away of sin. And it's a symbol that all over the world, men and women from every tribe, nation and tongue have participated in in solidarity because they follow the one Christ and the one gospel. And just on that, while we're there on baptism, and it's going to come up again and again through the book of Acts, the next term we're actually going to be celebrating baptisms together on the 10th of September. And there really are three people here, who should, sorry, not three people who should consider getting baptized. Like I'm going to call out three names now, you, you and you. Three types of people who should consider getting baptized. The first is if you're a believer and you have never been baptized, you should be baptized. There really isn't any reason not to. And it's obviously more obvious if you've, just, if you've been saved recently. But if it was a long time ago, it might be in your mind, you're like, well, I kind of, 
I sort of missed my shot. You kind of got to do it early doors, otherwise that, that's sort of it. It's sort of, you know, it's a bit like going to schoolies as an older person. You're like, I, just, I don't want to be a part of that, right? It's kind of weird. But the reason you should is because in truth, you're missing out on something that God has ordained as a means of grace for his people. And it's a sign that Christians have celebrated as a public declaration that I follow Christ and as a way of celebrating with the church the grace that you've experienced. And so if you haven't been baptized, you should. And probably the last reason for it is Jesus got baptized. So do you think you're better than Jesus? (laughs) Nobody here wants to be standing saying that, do they? So that's the first group. If you haven't been baptized, you really should think about it. The second one is this. If you got baptized when you weren't actually genuinely saved, that is, it was like your parents' decision or it's like maybe you're at a youth group and you're just like, ah, oh, this seems like a bit of a vibe, like everyone else seems to be doing it, I'll get in on that. But if it's quite clear to you that when you first got baptized, you really didn't have a saving faith, then you should do it. If only for this reason, to experience the blessing it is to be able to celebrate that with your church community, with your whole heart, and having experienced genuine and saving grace. Now, obviously, you don't want it to be the case that you're kind of always getting, like, getting baptized every like, I don't know, three to six months or something like that. So it's really more for if you're, if you're it's quite clear in your mind, you're like, when I got baptized, I know I wasn't saved and I know I am now, then now might be the time to do it and to celebrate that with your church community. That's the second one. And the third one is this. If you have kids who can articulate a faith in Christ, then, I, then I'd urge you to put it to them. City Kids is not a babysitting service so that we can have a nice, pleasant service in here. It is a ministry about making more and stronger disciples, just like we do in our adults' ministry. Right now, kids are studying scriptures, and even, com- even right now could be coming to a saving faith in Christ. And so we realize there's some discerning to do about what age is right for your kids and all of that, and it's tricky because some of your kids may want to and others may not. But it's something that, that really that does matter. And it's an outward sign of an inward reality. And it's an in, a, an insti- a, tradi- right up, an, a tradition that Christ instituted and commanded and that believers have kept all over the world. And so I want to encourage you to do this, to maybe sit down with your kids and to put no pressure on them to do it, but to say to them, look, explain to them through the Scriptures what baptism is, that it's an outward sign of an inward renewal, and say, kids, I want you to think about this. And, and if you decide to say no, we really respect that because that means that you're really taking it seriously. And so we don't want to put any pressure on you to do that. But if you're in an age where you understand what this means and you want to celebrate that with your church family, to consider doing it and then to give them some time to actually think about it. Because the reason this matters and the reason it's not just an empty tradition is because it's what Christ commanded it and it unites the church across the ages. The people have done it in the same way. Just as Philip and this man just see a body of water nearby where they are and he is baptized, so Christians all over the world have been baptized in the same manner. Because there is one Father, there is one Christ, there is one Spirit, and there is one Gospel and one baptism. That's Ephesians 4. And it's part of the unity that we share as a global church family. See, here this story ends with a man who, who gets the gospel and responds immediately and just wants to follow Jesus in any way possible. And so he's baptized right then and there. 
And then the story, if you notice, takes a funny turn. Look at how it finishes here. It says, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip just gets teleported. After saving this guy, he does no follow-up discipleship. He's just zapped and he finds himself in Azotus. And what I love is how Luke describes it here. It's almost like he doesn't miss a beat. He hits the ground in Azotus and then just keeps preaching the gospel. It's like he's, he, he's not even phased by the lack of context. Now, this is, this is genuinely wacky. This doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture. And so this isn't like a common occurrence in Scripture or in the book of Acts or even in the story of the Bible broadly. But it's in here to make a theological point. The mission is about God and what He's doing rather than what you and I are doing or God's people of the church are doing. So we started with the idea that in order for someone to get saved, we can sometimes believe that it's got to be optimized conditions, a really good communicator and a really receptive hearer. But here, God is demonstrating clearly, I can do anything I want, save anyone I want, by any means I want, no matter how wacky. And here, he does that. God is an interventionist God. He is the one guiding and directing his mission. He is the reason that we are here in Sydney, Australia, worshipping the same God that Philip spoke about on that day recorded here. The gospel is for anyone, from anyone and for anyone. The question is, do you believe this? And I want to ask you the question, if you are here and yourself maybe a little bit sceptical about the gospel... Do you believe ultimately that maybe the gospel's not for you? Because this is a common belief. I remember on a football team I was a part of years ago, there was one guy who was like, every team has an enforcer, and Alice was an Irish guy, which they're a particularly hard breed of enforcer, and he had a big kind of Celtic cross tattoo. And his reason for being in Australia, he told me, was that he was a, he was a bricklayer, and the, the moment he realized he had to move to Australia was when he was trying to, trying to kind of build a wall in like sub-zero temperatures or whatever it was. And he said as he was putting the trowel into the concrete mixer and getting it to the wall, the concrete was freezing on the way. And he said after his like fourth or fifth attempt of trying to just put the concrete down, he just burst into tears. And he's like, I'm moving to Australia. That's it. <laughs> but we were talking about things and I was working at a church at the time and he was asking me about that and I asked him, do you have a faith? And he said, oh, not not me, he said, I'm, I'm too far gone. And I thought, oh, that's, that's an interesting reflection. So for him, it was the sense, and he didn't go into the details, but whatever he had done in his past was the kind of things that people who become Christians don't do. There's a type of person or a category of person or maybe even a set of behaviors, and those kind of people are sort of eligible to become Christians, but then there are others who have made themselves ineligible. And he considered himself kind of one of that group. And it's interesting, I think many people think that. And it's a misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel. That actually what God is calling is an interest group, a group of people who are sort, kind of similar and he calls them to himself. Or actually they're a group of people who have similar interests and just find each other and form this interest group called the church. But here we can see clearly from this passage the gospel is for anyone. And it goes out to anyone. And it's not the case 
that it requires some kind of certain behavior change or a certain resume before you meet Christ. It is true that following Jesus will mean change. Jesus said to his own disciples even, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? To follow Christ and to believe in him means to trust him with all parts of our life. But it never starts with that. It starts with Jesus. That anyone who has truly been saved has come to meet the risen Lord Jesus and understand him as so compelling that they want to follow him with their whole life. And So my question for you is, have you really understood who Jesus was on his own terms? Do you know who he is, not just from second or third hand opinions of him? Because if not, I'd encourage you even to come along to Alpha tomorrow night and to hear more about who Jesus is. You might see what it is that has changed so many lives across the globe, even today. But if you are here and a follower of Christ, let me ask you from this text, do you believe that the gospel is for anyone? Or is it that you have in your mind people in your life who you like, there are, there are people in my life who are on a spectrum of nearer or further from, from understanding the gospel. Or perhaps there are even people in your life where you're like, you've almost written them off. You're like, they would never respond to the gospel. They never possibly could. Because if so, I want to put to you that that is not a biblical perspective. You know, over this term, kind of leading up to baptisms, we're going to be sharing testimonies from people at church here. And a few weeks ago, as a staff team for our training, we were sharing testimonies, even within that room, just five or six of us. And it's so funny because you, you think you know other people or how it is that they came to faith. And then when you sit down and actually hear people's stories, you hear how different they all are. And I think even if you did it, we're not going to do it now, but even if you did hear the testimonies of the people just sitting in your row right now, it would blow your mind the backgrounds that people came from, the things they've experienced and how it was that they actually came to genuine faith in Christ. Because the thing that's so striking is that the one thing we have in common is Jesus and it's almost nothing else. There isn't one particular type of person or one particular story. But actually the gospel is for all people from all walks of life. And this is the beauty of the church. And all it took to see this person saved was Philip being like, God, wherever you want to send me, I'll go. What would happen if you just had that mindset with God? Just like, God, whoever you want me to share the gospel with, I'll do it. Anything could happen. Philip did not wake up that day thinking he was going to get teleported, but it happened. And that's unlikely to happen to you. But it's incredible what does happen when we just trust that God is the one who's really at work and that it's not up to us. And to trust the power of the gospel, that as we speak the truth about Jesus, that it will tra- has the power to transform and change lives. May we be a people who, like Philip, trust God this much. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that in your infinite wisdom, you sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice for all people, that you have made humankind in your image, that we have worth and dignity because we are made by you, and yet in sin we have walked away from you, and yet you have made a way back through Christ. We praise you that the thing that unites us is not our bloodlines, but the blood of Jesus. The one whose atoning death has brought us new life and forgiveness and healing and renewal. And so, Father, we pray that you continue to strengthen us as your people to trust you, that you are already at work in this city, that you are already at work in lives of the people around us. 
and that you call us not to create new life like you can, but simply to be faithful witnesses like Philip, to share the truth about Jesus and to see you work powerfully in the lives of others. And so, Father, we just pray that you would strengthen our faith in you and our trust in you and that we might see many sons and daughters come to faith in Christ and all that you might be glorified in your people. Amen.